Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Randy Silver, a fellow product and leadership coach and one of the true weavers of the global product community. Randy is the co-host and founder of the Product Experience Podcast, runs the Product in the Ether meetup, and wrote, What Do We Do Now? A Product Manager's Guide to Strategy in the Time of Crisis. Now, prior to all this advisory work, Randy spent years in the trenches in head of product roles. And in this conversation, we discuss the perceptual issues that can undercut your product team. We discuss how to think about making better decisions faster, how to balance authority and influence, and how to level up our ability to collaborate under intense revenue pressure like many folks in our field are feeling right now. So with all that and more, I give you the one and only Randy Silver. Randy, my friend, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Thanks for the invite. Absolutely. I always enjoy our time together. One of the things I wanted to start off this conversation is, you know, I think you have one of the more interesting backgrounds of any of the product people I've met. Not that there is a typical product background, but I believe you were a music journalist for quite a while, right? I was, and I know so many people who were musicians or DJs and and, and other stuff before getting into this, but yeah, I was on on the other side of it. Um, I came out of school with a degree in an arts degree in biology and journalism, and somehow used that to become a music journalist for about ten years. Right on. What kind of music were you covering? I did everything except for blues and classical and jazz. Really, I did. Uh, I was Amazon's first hip hop and children's music editor. Okay. I did uh, lots of uh, rock and indie stuff. Did folk. I did alternative country. I did dance. I had a lot of fun. That does sound fun. Wait, so I'm curious, like, do you have affinity for all those different genres or do you, like, how do you translate your ability to critique that many genres? Because like, I, I know two genres, not 12. Um, I'm not going to say I'm an expert in all of them. Uh, I think actually it's, it's one of the things that got me into doing this and the, the weird transition from music to product. Part of it was when I was asked to be Amazon's hip hop editor, my knowledge was an affinity, not a deep uh, knowledge. I may not have been the best person they ever hired for the, for that role. But what I was really good at was hiring other people and helping to make prioritization decisions about what we should cover, listening to them, taking recommendations. So one of the things I'm proudest of from, from that part of my career is somebody wrote into Amazon's customer service uh, saying, hey, I'd love to write for you guys. They put him in touch with me. Uh, turned out he went to my high school. And so so some nepotism there. But he had some quality stuff. And I said, yeah, why not? I'll give you a try. And that led to more and more and more. And I'm not sure where he is now. I've lost track of him. But for a while, he was one of the lead music writers for the New York Times. Wow. And I gave him his first paying gig. So, you know, it's it's that kind of thing that uh, I really enjoyed. And I was able to identify with our customers. You know, Amazon in the late 90s, their, the profile of their hip hop buyer was not someone who was uh, a lot more knowledgeable than I was. That makes a lot of sense. You know, it's really interesting just even hearing that little that little vignette because, you know, in the time that you and I have known each other, a couple themes that have stood out to me very strongly about you already show up in the, just in that story from, you know, way back then, which is like you're very community oriented, you're very relational, and you're also, um, you're really good at communicating with people. And those are all things that I think are very great qualities that you bring to the product space. But it's just so interesting to hear that like that, that just seems like that's part of how you roll and how you always have. Well, to be honest, uh, I was an okay writer 
but I think I was a pretty good editor. I was good at assigning uh, people to things that I thought they'd be a good match for. And I was good at working with uh, the writers, the ed- other editors, the designers, the developers, helping them all put stuff together that, you know, we design out different stories, they'd work on different bits, and they would all come together and we tried to make something into a cohesive whole that uh, it, greater than the sum of its parts and was trying to delight our, our, our customers, our users, our readers. And same thing when I was working at magazines and in print, same thing when I was doing it for Amazon. And I realized as I, my career went on, I think I still do the same job. Mm. It's not really any different from that perspective. It's mm-hmm. how do you get a whole bunch of people to work better together to create something that's delightful to and useful and of interest to customers? Yeah. Um, same thing, different toys, different techniques, but same attitude. I love what you're pointing out here because, you know, for me, that that really is pointing at something that I think isn't talked about that much in our space. Like we talk a lot about the the craft of product management, right? And especially when you're the product manager, you're the PM, you're driving, you're owning some, you know, feature set or perhaps even a whole product or whatever, whatever your scope may be. What we don't talk about very much is product editing mm. and that aspect as, as you move into higher, a uh, little more senior roles, right? And you're no longer necessarily the, like the front line of it, but it's not really talked about too much. So I'm curious, how do you, when you, when you think about that, like how did your time as an, as a journalistic editor shape your work as a product editor? Yeah, I think it's 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 not just journalism. I've seen this in other places too. Uh, there's a guy I'm probably going to butcher his name, the pronunciation of his name. It's uh, Javier Grillo Marwa, and he is a a showrunner out in in L.A. Mm-hmm. He worked on Lost. He worked on uh, uh, Dark Crystal, a bunch of other shows, and he put out this uh, free 25 page PDF. And I'll I'll give you the link later. Um, it's called the Eleven Laws of Showrunning. And it's this is one of my Bibles. I absolutely love this because everything he does in developing a TV show and trying to tell people how to be a good showrunner is pretty much the same thing we do in in product. Um, the biggest difference is, you know, they make a story decision and they don't have they have to you know support the decisions that they made, but they don't have to support mm-hmm. the legacy code. So there's not so much uh, of uh, the the same kind of um, uh technical debt. They have story and decision debt, but not the same level of technical right, debt that right. we might have. They don't have to maintain it in the same way. But all these other things, uh, make decisions early and often, know what your show is and communicate it regularly, expect varying levels of competence from people. All these other things, these 11 laws, they're so relevant mm-hmm. to what we do. And he says it better than I do. So I'll just reference him. Yeah, I, I remember when you first told me about that. I went and I read it a couple of months ago, and it's almost actually it's funny. I have it teed up on my iPad to read tonight anyway, so I'm so glad that you you brought this up again. And it <laughs> occurred to me, you know, one of the things that also we talk about a lot is that you know product management is a, is a role with uh, high responsibility and low authority, right? Like we we're responsible for a lot, but we do not have tons of formal power. Um, is that different in the the sort of uh, these other editing spaces you're talking about, whether it's journalism or show running or whatever? Like it occurs to me that like a, a showrunner on a on a you know if you're an executive producer on a TV show or something, you'd probably have a lot of power. Yeah, in TV, I think you might do, but you know, think about if you're the person who wrote the script in uh, for a film, you you generally out of the room by the time they start production. True. Uh, TV is a little bit different, but you know, there's a lot going on there. I think ultimately what it comes down to is. If you don't own P&L or have some some input into it, right. then you're not really all that respected for these things. You are, you're just seen as a cost center and not a profit center, no matter how good your ideas are, no matter what you're working on. 
So the real challenge is, you know, the language we speak is one around costs. And how do you change the perception? How do you communicate uh, and have a better relationship with the rest of the business to be a real partner rather than a client, uh, you know, or a call center or a service center within the business? 100%. It's funny. This is very relevant to a topic you and I were talking about last week in, in an article that I'm about to put out. <laughs> probably by the time this episode releases, it'll be it'll be live. So we'll link to all this stuff in, in the show notes. But yeah, I, I cannot agree with you more strongly. If the, if the listener could see me, I'm, I'm nodding like a bobblehead here. Uh, but yeah, it's this idea that like we, <laughs> I guess the way I, I think about it is like we, we, we love to talk about, it's like we want all the freedom with none of the responsibility. Mm. You know, we want, we, we've been talking about empowerment for years, you know, at least four years since Josh Seiden published his book, Outcomes Over Output. You know, we've been chanting that like this sort of sacred mantra and then when sometimes the accountability piece comes around, we don't like it so much. And we're like, oh, wait, I have to be accountable for like revenue impact or ROI or so like, wait, what? <laughs> I think a lot, sometimes the frustration is you see something, you see an opportunity, you're, you're a product manager for an area or you're head of product for, for one part, for, for a product or a piece of something. And you spend all day in it. You know every single that thing that's wrong with it. You know every single opportunity to squeeze more usage, more revenue, more, you know, just to, to make it better. And so you have the list of things that are going to get you, let's, let's make up a number. You know, if I invest the next month or two in this, I'm going to make us an extra 5 million this year. And that's brilliant. You know, I'll think about the bonus you're going to get for bumping up revenue for 5 million. What you don't know is the, the team down the hall, needs the same amount of, of, of effort, the same amount of resources. I hate calling people resources, but you, you know what I mean. The same amount of investment. Yeah. Um, and their idea is going to generate 50 million. Mm -hmm. And you feel bad when they're chosen, they get uh, supported instead of you. Because this is, it's almost like mm -hmm. an insult to you that they got chosen and your ideas, you know, no one sees your genius and what your team generates. And the problem is we're not yeah. working together very well. We should be, you know, clubbing up with them on how do we make that 50 million opportunity work? How do we, how can we contribute to that? And after we uh, finish all the 50 million opportunities, then we should get the 5 million opportunities done. Obviously, you know, this is based on effort and, uh, and uh, all kinds of other stuff, but all things being equal, I'd rather do the 50 million yeah. one than the 5 million one if I'm the CFO, if I'm the CEO. And if you were sitting in a different seat, so would you. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, one of the things that you and I were speaking about recently that, that, as top of mind for me in this is, is language, right? We were talking about how we have to change our language. God, we, we love our jargon in product. We love it. It's like, guess what? No one cares. <laughs> they do not care. Like we have to speak the language of business. Like how about, you know, ROI, profit, market share, revenue, expected value, right? Like I, it's like, if we can't, um, if we can't actually articulate in a measurable way, the impact of what we're doing, it's like, can we really complain that much about not getting a seat at the table? Like, honestly. Yeah, part of the problem with this is it's some of that language that business uses is just as, as actually, let me ask, do you mind if I curse on this or no? Oh, fire away. Okay, okay. So some of the language that, that we use in business is also bullshit. Totally. Um, you know, we say some of those terms about expected revenue, expected value, things like that. And a lot of times that's just made up on a spreadsheet. No one really knows. It's the illusion of control that people are going for. Yep. And we spend all our time doing experimentation and discovery and things like that 
to try and nail it down and try and and re- uh, reduce the losses, reduce the problems that we're going to have along the way. There are actually terms that people in other parts of the business use to do this. Um, mm, Georgie yeah. Smallwood, uh, who's at Moonpig these days, she had this great line at the uh, Mind the Product Leadership meetup a, a couple weeks back or a couple months back now, um, where she talked about, you know, she was working with a group of people and she had convinced them that discovery was really worth doing. And they had made time for her and the team to do it. And that lasted for about <laughs> 20 minutes. And then they start saying, why aren't you just getting on with it? Why aren't you doing stuff? And she realized they didn't, even though she'd spent a lot of time and invested in explaining what discovery was and why it was important, they didn't get it. So she stopped saying discovery and she started saying due diligence. I love it. And this is, there's no difference really between product due diligence and product discovery. It's just, they would never move forward on any project without doing their due diligence. Exactly. As soon as she starts speaking their language, they go, oh, okay, it's, it's that. Oh, I get, yeah, right. It's like, because la- language is a hook into mental models. And so if we are not hooking into the mental models of, our, of our, our peers and our collaborators in other parts of the business, like, come on, of course, like, we need to meet them where they are, I think is the simplest way to say it, right? If they speak a different language, like, guess what? In product, we're always translators anyway, so translate. Yeah, it's, it's changing the perception of you as a call center, of you as a service, as you as the other or an impediment to getting things done to being a partner and being someone that they really trust. Yeah, no, I, I'm so glad we're going here because this this is, you know, we're going to link to all this in the show notes, but you gave a great talk at Mind the Product recently about sort of this this sort of 4P framework you had of, of priorities, people, mm. process, and but then really it's about perception. So I'd love you to just tee that up briefly and then let's keep exploring and see where this takes us. Yeah, for, and, and thank you, by the way. Um, so for ages and ages, I thought I was good at my job because I was able to understand what are the priorities that we should be working on and and try and ensure that we're only working on the things that were really important and not working on the things that weren't. So we were able to, you know, as John Cutler says, we were able to limit our work in progress. We were able to concentrate and work on things. And not perfectly, but, you know, I, I knew what we should be doing most of the time. And then I like to think I'm pretty good with people and I hired some good people. I empowered people. I worked with them well. I didn't just, you know, empower them by letting them be uh, autonomous. I let them be autonomous within boundaries. They knew what their limits were. They knew how to communicate and collaborate with other people. We tried to create an environment where the teams could succeed. And so that was working pretty well. And then we went to work on our processes because there's nothing worse than a team that knows what's supposed to do, has all the right people, has all the right uh, possibilities for it, and then is stuck doing, you know, just so much admin that they don't actually get anything out the door. So, you know, understand what you do, get the right people, and make sure that they have the ability to ship value. Mm Mm-hmm. And for the longest time, I thought I was really good at my job because I did those three things. And I kept running into the same brick wall over and over and over again. And it took me a long time to realize that there is a fourth thing. It's that the, the, the fourth P of perception. And this one's fundamental. This one underpins everything else. And it's if your partners, whether they're other product teams, whether they're your boss or a stakeholder, whether it's sales or marketing or legal, it doesn't matter who it is. If they don't agree that you're working on the right things or that you've got the right people, because you're only as good as the weakest person on your team as far as they're concerned, uh, if they don't agree that the processes you're doing are ha- adding value to them, then it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got to find a way to make sure that you're working not just the right way according to our books 
And again, at uh, the MTP leadership, Matt LeMay had a great line about, it doesn't matter if you do it by the book, grow the fuck up and and do the job that, the, you know, your job is to deliver value, period, to help the company be more successful for whatever definition of success you're going to have, whether it's usage, whether it's revenue, whether, you know, whatever it is, that is your job. If you aren't doing that, it does not matter. Bingo. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I, I can't agree more strongly. Uh, and it, that echoes everything I, I wrote <laughs> in that piece that we were just talking about. Um, the, it's funny, I actually had a line in there that I, I think I cut from an early draft that literally just said, grow the fuck up. <laughs> like, stop whining, grow the fuck up. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I love what you're pointing to because it, it also reminds me of uh, our mutual friend, Alan Albert, who is, is brilliant mm. at value discovery and um, value-based pricing. And, and it's this thing is like in all of our spreadsheets and all of our analytical approaches to what we do and, and all that stuff, like you were saying earlier about, you know, expected value or fill in your business term here, we forget that at the end of the day, value is basically subjective. And if it is not perceived, yeah. it literally does not exist for that person, for the perceiver, right? We can, two people can perceive the same shared quote unquote reality in utterly different ways and therefore it doesn't exist in their reality. And it's like, we, we just forget that because we're too close to it, I think. Yeah, we get really lost in the weeds on things all the time. And this is the thing, how did, being able to step back is hard. We've, we're so busy all the time. People don't like to share information. Finding a way to build those relationships, to get that understanding, to really uh, become a trust, as I keep saying, a trusted partner at the mm -hmm. right levels, mm -hmm. it's hard work. Yeah. Yeah, this stuff is not easy. It's it's <laughs> it's like this idea that um I mean if you if you run to oversimplify it a little bit, it's like, well, we have these, you know, sometimes we perceive these partners who are let's say skeptical of the value of product. Sometimes they're they're fair, you know, it's fair that they're skeptical because they're not perceiving the value. And it's like, well, if that's there, we can almost oversimplify to say there's one of two things happening. Either A, we are like they are not perceiving the value that we are actually creating, in which case this is like a communications and perception problem, or B, we're actually not creating that much value. And we need like neither mm. of these is acceptable. And so it's like whichever one it is, we got to deal with that. Rich Miranov has a, a really good story about how when he goes into uh, to companies, if sales is selling the wrong thing, if they're coming in with requirements that don't align to the roadmap, you know, they're they're trying to turn things into a feature factory just give us this and we can close this sale kind of thing. He first thing he does is he pulls their their bonus measures yep. and takes a look at that. And if what sales is trying to do is generate short-term revenue deals of any kind, but not what the company has agreed is the long-term plan of what the ideal customer profile is of what they're trying to sell, then he sits down with the CEO and rewrites the the bonusable measures for the sales team. I mean, obviously, this is an ideal situation. Rich is great. He's done this stuff a lot over the years. You can't do that when your company is in existential crisis mode and just needs the next deal to make payroll in, in right. a couple of months. Right. Obviously, you, you know, there's always an it depends kind of answer on this stuff. But if you've got a healthy enough runway, if you're trying to do the right thing, if you try, if everyone's agreed to go to the next level, this is the kind of stuff you have to do as a grown up. Hundred percent. Yeah. No, I, I remember when he shared that with me uh, when I had him on the show and, and I was I loved that that move. And it's also like, well, looking at their incentive structures and, and what they get, you know, what they get commission on. It's like, well, if they're getting commission on like services revenue, well, guess what? We're gonna end up with a lot of like customization mm -hmm. and work that is not the kind of product work we want and it's gonna destroy us over time. And it's kind of our own fault. So we have to look, you know, take that hard look in the mirror. So I wanna go a little bit deeper here though, Randy. Like talk to me about so let's say 
let's say we've got people, and I think this is reasonably common out there. We've got folks who who are they're doing good work. You know, they they really are setting good priorities. They got good people on the team. They're doing a good process. All all those first three things, and yet this problem remains. So very likely, it is a perception problem. What mm-hmm. do we do about it? Glad you asked. Uh, <laughs> sorry, no, I feel very cheesy, but I'm going to do no, the self promo thing from um. So I put together a uh, uh, a, a canvas too, for so this. Please, <laughs> I know. <laughs> So I put together a canvas for this. It's called uh, the the product development, the product experience canvas. Um, and the the idea here is it's worth doing it yourself. It's got a, a, those four boxes on there of pr- p- uh, priorities, people, process, and perception, and with some trigger questions for you. And it's worth sitting down and doing it by yourself. It's a good exercise to spend fifteen minutes every once in a while looking at this and saying, "What's holding us back?" Or what, do I actually have good answers to these things? Do I know what's going on? And just pick one or two things that feel like they're, they're holding you back. It's worth doing it with your team at retros every once in a while, but it's also worth doing it with your stakeholders sometimes. Where I've found this to be the best value for me is there are times where I've had partners in the company that I did not get on with. Mm-hmm. We did not agree on things. It was holding the the team back because our functions weren't working well together. And try as I might, I couldn't sort it out. It wasn't something that was working using my normal techniques. Bringing this approach changed changes it. Um, because now I'm not talking to the stakeholder and arguing back and forth with them about things. We're trying to put something down on paper and say, what is it that you see? What is it that I see? What is it that we both see that is causing problems? What is it that we're actually trying to get to? And let's make sure that then we talk about how do we work together to do that? Mm-hmm. It's not always going to be easy. Sometimes you might need a third party to get involved. You know, if you and your CTO, for example, aren't getting on, then maybe you need a CEO, CFO, COO, somebody like that to come in or a coach or facilitators to come in and help facilitate the conversation. Um, it's not always going to be easy. You know, we don't choose the people we work with all the time. That's mm-hmm. why they pay us. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but it's... It's just a, a framework for having the right discussion, making sure that you've got something down on paper that you can that you can agree to uh, work on together and say, right, over the next couple of months, this is the problem we want to solve. This is what we want to commit to, whether it's us directly or getting our teams to do it, getting other people involved together. But we're going to to try and make this better. And having that conversation makes a massive difference. Mm. You know, you're heard, they're heard, more importantly. And you hear them and you've got a commitment from them of what it is that they want to be fixed. It's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be perfect. Not everyone is perfect and honest and, you know, we're not always great at these conversations. But it's better than what I was doing before. It's using our empathy. We would never, if somebody said about a customer, right, if if like a, a PM on our team or an engineer said about the customer, like, oh, they, they just don't get it. They just don't get it. You'd be like, okay, that's like, that's not an acceptable answer. Like, that's not their, you know, it's not their job to get it. It's our job to make it obvious for them and intuitive for them. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, what if we gave that same, what if we held ourselves to that same standard with our, with everyone else in our company, right? What if our CFO should, what if, what if, what if it should be as easy for our CFO or for sales to understand the value of what we're doing as it is for a customer to use the product and get the value they want from it? Um, so I love this idea of like taking an empathetic approach and, and getting out of our, I don't know, kind of getting out of our own little orbit. I've had a few clients lately where I've been running discovery courses with them and 
you know, not everyone is customer facing, not everyone mm-hmm. is a product manager, but the, the, the principles of discovery work regardless. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we've talked about is, you know, it's Teresa Torres is, is as smart a person as it comes to with this, but all of her techniques work just as well on internal customers, mm-hmm. on your internal stakeholders. There's nothing wrong with trying to sit down and do motivation mapping about them, making sure you understand what it is they're trying to do, what they want, making sure you talk to them at least once a week. All of those things are just as valid and, and just as useful. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I've noticed as well, whether it's Teresa's approach or Itamar's with the evidence-guided book, like any, any mm-hmm. of these things, we're all, we're all, you know, using different languages to kind of point at the same principles. Um, one of the things that I found is that everybody, re- not everybody, almost everybody responds to empathy and curiosity. And most people are far more um, reasonable than rational than we want to give them credit for when we're upset. And so if we actually invite them into a conversation that's a little more evidence-based, they're often willing to play ball with that. If we do that from a stance of curiosity and empathy. Yeah, one of the techniques I like the most is if you're having trouble with people, or even better, when you first go into a company or a team or an area, uh, sit down with all the stakeholders and do an informational interview. Mm. And explain to them, this is informational. I want to, you know, from an OODA loop perspective, I want to uh, orient myself. Mm-hmm. So I need certain information from all of you. I'm going to do the same interview with questionnaire with all of you. And one of them is, what is it we're trying to do here? What is the definition of success? What is do, What is your bonus based on? Things like that. What do you see as the biggest problems right now? Mm-hmm. Asking those questions. Because if you find out that you're getting totally different answers from from people who are stakeholders, from people who are partners, then you've got a totally different problem. It's not just figuring out who to to make happy. It's figuring out how are you going to reconcile this? You know, it's whether you may be going to someone higher up the food chain than you to say, we've got this problem. We need a bit of a workshop. We need to get everyone together to agree on what we're trying to do. It might be just saying, okay, maybe the person there before you or or the way the um, the uh, environment was set up was lots of one-to-one conversations. Maybe it's just bring them all into a room together and saying, this is where we are right now. This is a proposed pathway, but I want to hear all your thoughts together on it. Mm. Um, there's lots of things you can do to, to make it obvious why thing decisions are being made, solicit other people's involvement and try and change the environment and the, the, the way things are working so that you can have better conversations. Yeah, I want to talk more about changing the environment here in just a second, but really quick, just to give people a few more actionable handles on that. Like, what else would you ask in that informational mm. interview? Because I think it's a brilliant technique. I've actually got a sheet on this one as well. I'll give you the link later on. But yeah, I specifically ask questions about uh, what is it that they're working on right now? What are the biggest problems that they see at the moment? Um, what is their current goal for their team? What is their goal and ask of my team? Um, actually, one of the best questions that came up with the, from, from someone else was, you know, we have that Columbo thing of you always at the end of an interview ask, is there anything else, anything else I should have asked you? Yeah. What else should I know? And, uh, this great, uh, person, Kit, um, said, ask, you should ask me, uh, how I like to be communicated with. Oh. And I loved that. And it was, she was absolutely right. It was, you know, she had just come from one company, was since taking over something else. They were using archaic systems that she mm-hmm. hated. She said, yeah, just WhatsApp me. Just Slack me or WhatsApp me. I won't respond to anything else very well. That's the best way to get me. I really appreciate you you communicating with me that way. Love it. 
and things like that, or how often do you want to be communicated with? What kind of decisions do you want to be involved with? Things like that is really valuable because we get our communication uh, tone wrong with people all the time. Mm-hmm. Just asking them it makes a big difference, especially at the beginning of a relationship. Oh, 100%. 100%. It actually really reminds me of uh, there was a great article years ago. I think it was on the first round blog. I remember doing this. It was like, the indispensable document every manager needs. It was basically saying like, hey, let's say you just got into a new role, write like a one sheet or a one pager on yourself that you can give to the people you work with. And it's like everything they need to know about working well with you, right? What are your communication preferences? How do you like feedback? What, where, where are your sensitivities so they can, you know, be responsible about that? What are you most worried about? Like just kind of all this essential stuff that you would love to know about somebody you're really trying to work well with. And it's like, you can lead with that and open that door. And if you show someone a document like that, I think most people will probably respond really well and offer back a lot of the similar information, which you also want. Yeah, I love the manager readmes. Um, Thank you. That's such I a think that's a really good it. thing. In fact, <laughs> the manager we do, well, that's, what I've, that's why I've heard it called before. And I, we, we actually uh, talked to uh, Diana Stepner mm. last night about exactly about this. Mm. Uh, about people first leaderships and and how to do the, uh, that. And manager readmes came up from her too. There is a bit of an issue I've seen sometimes with it where it can be seen as a bit presumptuous mm. when you just hand someone else and say, this is how you need to act with me. Uh, so mm, I would always lead by asking them first mm-hmm. and then following up with my readme a- afterwards uh, or, or f- figuring out, is it best to just hand them a, a, a document or to talk them through it? Mm-hmm. But the the act of sitting down and writing yourself is really useful because it tells you how to, how you want to communicate to other people. Just like anything else, the act of writing itself is is thinking. It clarifies how we think about things, helps mm. us understand ourselves better, which is you know only going to help us work better with our our peers. It, you know, it also reminds me of um, I'm looking at this book on my shelf, my bookshelf right over here uh, that I read so many years ago, but it was actually really helpful. It was called Mastering Project Management, and it's like you know in in product land we we're very squeamish about ever being. Uh, considered like a project manager, but it's like, you know what, that is a key part of everything we do. We got to get stuff done. And um, I remember in that book, the most useful thing I got from that book was there's a template in there for what he calls a roles and responsibilities conversation. And it's been Mm. over the years, like one of the single most useful things that has ever helped any difficult work relationship is you just sit down with this person and you just draw three columns on a, on a whiteboard or Miro or whatever. And you just, you just talk about it. You just say, okay, great. Like, Hey, I just want to get clear. So we're, we're clear here with each other. Like, what am I responsible for? What are you responsible for? And where, what are we both, what do we have to share responsibility for? And just because I'm responsible for something doesn't mean you don't have input or say on it and vice versa, but it means I've got, you know, at the end of the day, it's on me. Um, and it almost doesn't matter, I find, where things end up in those columns. What does matter the most is that you have the conversation and make it explicit. Yes. Yeah, having conversation. Everything, every tool that I use, every tool that I come up with or, or recommend is always in service of how do we have better conversations with people mm-hmm. that will clear up. So, I don't know, you know, as product people, we don't do much. I mean, we do a ton, but we aren't <laughs> responsible for actually producing something ourselves by ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think the only thing we're really responsible for is creating better environments, mm-hmm. creating better understanding, and having better conversations. I'm going to reference three people in a row. I'm, I, I love giving credit to other people, but uh, so much of what I do is is uh, referencing other people. So let's see. Uh, wonderful product person here in the UK named Monica Terska. 
I used to, when I asked her, you know, to describe what is it that product managers do? Mm -hmm. What is it that we actually do? I always had a terrible, th a very flippant answer that my wife liked, which is I go to meetings so other people get work done. Okay. Um, which is kind of true functionally, but it's flippant. It's not very helpful. It's not very useful. Yep. Monica's line is so much better, and I use hers now, is we help people make better decisions faster. Yep. Sometimes we make them, but sometimes, a lot of times, we're facilitating it. And to have those conversations, um, the next one I want to talk about is uh, Christina Watke also has some really good stuff in her last yep. book about a team charter, team canvas, yep. roles and responsibilities, all those kinds of things. I love the stuff that she's got. And uh, a guy over here in the UK, again, uh, Roman Pickler, if you know him, mm -hmm. Roman's got something on his site in his resources, a decision-making guide. Mm. And it's a little more specific about product management than I like, but I love the, the idea of it. And it's helping people to remember, sometimes you can make a decision and then inform people. Sometimes you need a unanimous consent in advance. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need informed consent. Mm -hmm. But think about the type of decision that you're empowered to, you know, when you have a decision coming up, is this one you're empowered to make? Is this someone, is one that you have to get unanimous consent, majority consent, informed consent, things like that? It's really useful as a, as a flow chart mm -hmm. to just remember sometimes you can do this stuff or sometimes you need to be really careful and, and have those in-depth consultations first. No, I love that. We will link to all that stuff in the show notes, including the, the conversation I had with Christina on this, on this podcast a long time ago. She was one of the first, first guests I had on. She was very <laughs> gracious with her time when, I, when this show was just a little infant. No, oh. no, I really love what you're pointing at. It's something I've been thinking a lot about, actually. A, a recent episode on this, this show uh, was with a wonderful coach named Pam Fox Rollin. And she's an executive coach, does a lot of work in Silicon Valley. And she and her partners recently put out a book called Growing Groups into Teams. And it's a fantastic book on leadership. Ooh. Love it. Highly recommend it. Um, and we'll link to all the stuff in the show notes. But one of my favorite line of that entire book, and it so resonated with me, and I, I, when I got a chance to talk to her about it, she's like, yep, that's the core of it, was this answer to the question of what is it that leaders do? Right? That's an old question. And there's been many cuts at that question over the years. And my new favorite answer comes out of their book. And that is that leaders build futures that matter through conversations. I like that. And I was like, oh man, that is so good. And then when I started to map that into product, I'm like, well, what does is, what is the then product leaders do? I'm like, well, we build products that matter through conversations because we have to talk to all these people to build a product and get them to build a product that matters to build a future that matters. And we have to do it through conversations. So I just, I, I love what you're pointing out here with the decisions and the discussions. It's just, it's really resonating for me. Yeah, it's, I don't think that's, uh, I do anything else at this point. I mean, whether it's communities or advisory work or anything else, mm -hmm. I have conversations with people to try and help them have better conversations with other people, mm -hmm. or I facilitate conversations for them because it's really difficult for, for people to change relationships with others if they have to be both a fac facilitator and a participant. Yeah. So sometimes bringing in an external facilitator, whether it's someone in your company or someone external, it's a really valuable thing. It makes a big difference. And sometimes it's the only way to change the conversation to, or to change the relationship. Yeah, I've seen that as well, you know, because in some of the advisory work I've done with clients, like half the time I'm like, wow, what is it I'm actually doing here? And sometimes it's I'm just holding a frame and stewarding a conversation along because they can't because they're too in the conversation. And it, it's, it can be amazing that that's the thing that makes the difference. But um, I want to pivot here really quick and, and go a little bit deeper into this idea of changing the environment. It's something we were touching on a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And we talk about, you know, think about culture change, 
environment change is sort of a notoriously hard thing, or at least it's perceived that way. How do you think about it? I think recently I've come to the realization that every engagement I have, because I'm not doing line product management anymore, because I'm either doing leadership or coaching and advisory with leadership, or if I'm coaching, even if I'm coaching and advising individual product managers, but what I've come to realize is every project, no matter what everyone else thinks it is, is a transformation project. Mm. Um, product people are are transformation managers. We're change agents by definition. Mm-hmm. Because we're brought into a company, even if they have good innovation processes, good product processes, we're being asked to fundamentally change the product that there is, to add new features, to change the way it works, to take away old features, yep. which is both shipping code, but it's also changing behaviors within the company. It's changing the way that the operational works. Um, the other side of it is a lot of times we're also being asked to change how things are delivered, the process of rolling, going to market and rolling it out as well. You, It's not enough to just put code into production. That doesn't deliver value. Getting sales, getting marketing, getting support, getting everyone else mm-hmm. on side to really understand this is a critical part of the job. So what you're doing is change management or transformation all the time. Mm. Years ago at uh, one of the Mind the Product conferences, they had someone in who asked everyone to raise their hand and say, how many of you are in sales? Mm-hmm. And like two people raised their hand and said, wrong, you're all in sales. <laughs> and I've been to other seminars that say that, and I don't like that framing of it. I totally get the message. We, A lot of our job is convincing people. Yep. And there are amazing sales techniques that we really should learn that are of incredible value. I don't want to think I'm in sales, though. Mm-hmm. I want to... I want to stay in product mm-hmm. and, and in, in advisory in, in, in the, the areas I'm doing. I know I'm selling myself, selling my services, selling my company all the time. But I like to think of it as more of change and transformation management. Mm-hmm. And that way I'm a partner rather than – and the best salespeople are partners as well. And, uh, you know, tars and feathers, people to say sales is slimy and evil. They're not. They can be. But I've met te- some terrible slimy product managers and delivery managers and engineering managers, too. There's No one has a, a monopoly on being on the side of the angels. <laughs> that's a nicer way to say it than I was going to say it. But I like your way. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's really well said. So, you know, being if we take this as a given that we are all in product change agents, catalysts, uh, call it whatever you want to call it. How do we actually do it? Because it, it is a hard thing. And I know we've been speaking about perception, so that's clearly a piece of it. But like to make this a little more tactical for people, how, how should we think about uh, actually approaching this in our in our work? Especially, you know, assume we're stepping into a new role, for example. Yeah. Um, I think it comes back down to a couple of things. Perception is and empathy are really the key things. What do people really want and working with them to help build the trust, get get yourself onto the positive side mm-hmm. of the trust bank mm-hmm. before you make withdrawals from mm-hmm. it is a really key thing. And we say that a lot, but we usually start with, well, they hired me, mm-hmm. so they they must want this. And there's a big difference between a company saying saying that they want something and actually believing it and following through on it. Yep. And it's hard. It is. Uh, the people I see who are best at this are the ones who pay real attention to it, who build the relationships, build the empathy. They don't assume that they have buy-in or permission to do things. They work their ass off to 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 create it. Um, the other side of it is patience and grit, mm-hmm. and you know the resilience side. And I know that's come up 
with uh, we both did the SVPG workshop mm-hmm. uh, for for coaches uh, last year, um, and that came up a couple of times. It's incredibly important. This job is so hard. It is so frustrating. Even the best people, mm-hmm. especially the best people, know this one. I had an amazing boss years ago at a, at a, an enterprise who was the calmest person I've ever met. Mm-hmm. And every single day he lost battles, but he also won battles. And what you would see is slowly but surely, over the course of a year or two, he would win the wars. Mm-hmm. And I hate the, the, the battlefield metaphors, right. but the, perspe- the, the point is he didn't get frustrated, not publicly anyway, he never really let it phase him. He understood there was a much bigger picture and he could afford to be gracious and lose on some things because it didn't matter. He was trying to set up uh, enough things and do enough work in the background to set things up so that eventually, inevitably, it would go in the direction that he was recommending. Even if other people couldn't see it right now, in the longer term, it would go the way. But if he had a, the right strategy, it was not. Nece- it was better to keep his again battlefield metaphor. Better to keep his powder dry and wait for the right op- opportunity instead of trying to push it and destroying a relationship. So this boss of yours, it reminds me of of one of the best bosses I've ever had as well. Very similar dynamic. He just just seemingly unflappable, right? Just so calm, cool as a cucumber. And I know he got frustrated, but it reminds me of something I was thinking about recently. Like we talk a lot. I, I wrote a, a, a short little nudge um, newsletter nudge recently about like equanimity, and it's a, it's a word that doesn't get used a lot in our circles. Um, you know, we talk about resourcefulness. We talk about being relentless. Like Paul Graham of Y Combinator, right? He's he's said for a long time that being a great founder, that the like the 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 core thing is to be relentlessly resourceful. And I think that totally applies to product mm. people, like you're pointing to. And I think one of the things that really helps in being relentless in that way is, you know, it, that doesn't always mean that you you you're pushing as hard as you can in every single moment, right? That's that can be a recipe for burnout. Um, but it's this idea of equanimity, which for me, I, I, my personal connection to that comes out of my meditation practice and, and Buddhism. And, you know, it's a big word in that world. And the, the definition of equanimity is, is mental calmness, composure, and evenness of temper, especially in a difficult situation. And I can't think of anything more helpful for doing this really hard job than that. Yeah, remembering that the job isn't all there is, that you have friends, you have family, you have uh, hobbies, you have things outside of it. It is really helpful. It can be really hard. Um, we had uh, Marty Kagan on the podcast, uh, on our podcast a while back, and we challenged him about something that was in one of his books. And he's since walked it back or mm. uh, clarified it is probably a better way of putting it, mm. uh, which is, he, he, and the, the problem is though that it, people had misinterpreted this for a long time. And it was the idea that to be a good product manager, you had to work a ridiculous number of hours, you know, mm-hmm. on the order of 80 hours, 60 to 80 hours a week. Right. And that meant you couldn't also have a life outside of work in a pract- in a proper way. Right. Um, you had to be too involved. And what he clarified is, this is not, this is an anti-pattern. This is not a good thing. This is what he's observed most Ah. of of the best product managers doing. It isn't a recommendation. And the reason that most of them had to do it is because they were doing two jobs. They were doing the product job and the project or delivery job Mm -hmm. as well. Mm. I don't know uh, how common it is where you are, Andrew, and the the clients you've got and the people you talk to. But here in the UK, delivery management, I've worked with some amazing people. And it is an art. Mm -hmm. And I will... 
I always recommend getting a good delivery manager on your team or as part of a program. You know, they don't necessarily, you know, it's not like a scrum master. You don't necessarily have to have one, a one to one relationship between project, a product manager and DM, but having the appropriate people at the right levels, making sure that things get shipped. And working with the teams to, to, to get that going is incredibly important. And it frees up the product manager to actually do their job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there has been a lot of talk, uh, to, if you want to talk about the, you know, year in review type oh, stuff. Oh, yes. There's been lots of talk about, uh, Brian Chesky this uh. year and, and what Airbnb <laughs> did. I was wondering and when we'd go. I here. know we talked about this ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I know, but we talked about this to ourselves the other week in, in a private conversation. I think there's a, a lot of misinterpretation. Now, I don't know Brian Chesky. I don't know anyone at Airbnb. I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But what I saw publicly was an admission that they hadn't empowered the product managers to do the right job, mm-hmm. that they hadn't created an environment where product teams could be successful, mm-hmm. and they were reorganizing things in such a way that product managers could actually do the really important work of working on strategy, of working on ideas, of of coordinating what to do and making sure the teams were working on the right things and empowering the dev teams to get on with delivering mm-hmm. it. I think it's a really positive thing the way they've done this and they, the fact that they've uh, recognized that this was a problem, that there, the, the strategy alignment and coordination, the, the, uh, the, the conversations at that level weren't happening and changing the structure of the organization to go for that, it's messy. But I think it's a really good thing. And uh, I wrote an article about this a while ago about how, you know, Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it is a dumpster <laughs> fire right now. Airbnb is in the stages of reclaiming and getting on the right track. And Tumblr, of all places, <laughs> was published this amazing thing about this is what we're trying to do. This <laughs> is at the high level what our, our, our core uh, goals are. These are the two or three things we're doing uh, in each area to try and meet those goals. And now we're going to get out of the way and let our teams actually do it. Mm -hmm. And the maturity to be able to communicate that not only within the company, but publicly, that's a lot of work to get to that level of management maturity. And I think that's where we want to try and get these people to. that's, That's our job. If we can get companies to that, then we're doing a great job. It doesn't matter if we're sitting there and know about every single feature. If we can do that, then we're doing the right job. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. You know, the the whole Airbnb thing. There's been such a such a defensive reaction within the broader product community. You know, and I, I think it's because I think it goes <laughs> back to everything we've been talking about here, right? It feels like our professional identity is under attack, and that people are questioning our our value. And you know, to some extent, they are. And that's like honestly, that's that's a that's an okay thing for management and leadership to do. Every every part of the business has got to contribute and drive ROI and back to perception of value. If they're not perceiving it, then that's a real problem and it's fair for them to, to consider it. But I think it just, I think for a lot of us, it, it a lot of product folks, uh, it triggers our insecurity and then we get very defensive and reactionary, but we don't really yeah. stop to consider like, is there any truth to what they're pointing at? Yeah, we have to realize that every founder did our job at one point before handing it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and they probably knew, um, if they're not, not the technical founder, then they knew they had to hire devs to do the, the, the engineering work. They knew that they could probably get someone off Fiverr or something like that to do design work up to a point. Mm-hmm. And they could probably have some great ideas and they want to be the art director, but they know they're not going to make the pixel perfect designs on a regular mm-hmm. basis. But product management, because we don't have a tangible, shippable thing that we uniquely do, if you fire a product manager, 
it's going to take a while before you really notice the effect. Mm-hmm. And you may have done the job ahead of time. And it's, you know, it's the, we know what to ship. Just do it. Just do the thing I said. Just uh, uh, what my mom said, what my last client said, whatever. It takes a while for our value to be missed. Mm. If, if they even recognize it as such. So it's hard to, to get there. So we have to have that, that perspective ourselves and that understanding. What is it that people need from us? And it's not an us and them business and tech mm-hmm. side of things. It is how do we create a team where people understand that we have that empathy. We are working very consistently with them to help and make the right decisions faster. Absolutely. So one of the things I've got is a different definition of a product team than, than most people have. You know, most people say it's a product manager, design and research, you know, a copywriter if you're lucky. Uh, uh, um, and engineering manager and devs, you know, design, de- delivery manager, whatever. To me, that's just a group of people that are going to put code into production and make it pretty if you're lucky. I don't think that's a product team. I think a product team is a group of people who can do four things. Mm-hmm. They can ask a question, get an answer, understand the answer, and make a decision, take action based on that answer. Mm-hmm. So that means, you know, if you are customer facing, that means you've got sales, you've got support, you've got marketing, you've got legal all as part of your team in the room making decisions, maybe not every single day. You know, that doesn't mean they have to come to stand up and do Jira tickets and things like that. But it does mean that they need to be there at the quarterly planning at the very least to say, what is it we're trying to uh, uh, solve? What are our OKRs? What is What does success look like? And what are we going to judge ourselves on? And how are we going to work together to do that? And you all have to know each other's name and be able mm-hmm. to, to coordinate with each other on a regular basis. Um, and that's, that comes from, uh, Jeff Patton. And, you know, it's a, I think it's a four sentence version of a long talk that he did that I saw years ago. And I've loved it ever since. Yeah. It's I'm just going to borrow that too. Yeah. Like I, I love it. You have a question, you can get an answer, you can understand the answer, you can make a decision and you can take action on it. So for me, it's five bullet points, but that's, that's, a, yeah. that's a beautiful synopsis. Um, and it, you know, it's funny it, it, what you just said there. Um, it really speaks to, I, I want to give another a shout out again to, to the conversation I had with Pam Fox Rollin that, that we'll link to in here. You know, one of the things in their book, Growing Groups into Teams, the fundamental question there is, well, what's the difference? How do you, you know, what's the difference between a group and a team? And the answer that came out of that that mm. I really liked was it that you know uh, that what really makes a team a team and not just a, a group of people, um, like a, a working group, is two things. Like first is a shared promise. Mm. And secondly, is a commitment to coordinate to deliver on that promise. And that's what I hear in what you were just pointing at, right? Like you, you've agreed, we are, we are shared, we are signing up for something together that we are going to do this thing together. And then we have agreed, we are going to work it out together and collaborate and do what we got to do to deliver on that promise. And so going back to Christina Woodkey, you know, it's like shipping code isn't, it's not done when the code ships. It's done when you do the thing, when you solve the problem, right? If no progress has been made, the job is not done. When value is realized. Absolutely. It's a challenge. And this is the challenge we've all signed up for in product roles. This is not a line management job. Nope. This is, that's not what this is about. It's not about who reports to you. It's about who you can influence and how you can make a difference. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what your title is. If you can't get the right people in the room and help them to make a decision, then you're not doing it well enough. Yeah. It's like, yeah, ultimately what has to happen is you have to get the right people in the room, make a decision and get it into action in order to deliver progress, i.e. value. Until that happens, the job ain't done. That's it. All right, I feel like we should just drop our mics right now. So, 
Yeah, I think we solved it. Done. (laughs) (laughs) Put put a pin in it. Um, But yeah, just one one other thought that occurred to me as you were, you know, a few minutes ago, you were talking about how it takes a while, it can or it can take a while for for folks to realize the uh, the missing value of product, right? Like every founder said, "Well, I did that job once," and so I I have a my, my quick question there is, what is it that they you think they perceive? You know, at first, like if they think, "Oh, it's so obvious, just go do this." To them, that probably is true. And then what is it you think they'll notice in, let's say it's a few months? What will become very obvious to them that isn't obvious now is maybe another way to say it. Yeah, I think I think this comes up a lot of times when companies are scaling. Because when you're, you're small, you can take a lot of shortcuts. Mm-hmm. You can decide something in the morning and have it shipped that afternoon. Because you only have one customer or no customers, and it's a very tangible thing. And there's only a few of you sitting around the table, so there's not too much to, to coordinate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, virtually or or in reality. Um, and as you start to scale, you have all kinds of other things. You have operational responsibilities. You have multiple customers. You have second and third and fifth and sixth order effects of something. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't keep the entire system in your head anymore. So you have to have conversations. You have to have check-in points. And it's not necessarily as easy mm-hmm. to do this mm-hmm. when as you start to grow. But... If you're no longer involved in some of these day-to-day conversations, if you don't see the complexity of the system now, then it's easy to fall back on, well, we used to do it this way. These people I hired must not be as good as I was at mm-hmm. it. So you, it takes a while to, re, and, and there's a lot of level, of matu- uh, a lot of maturity to understand, no, this is a much more complicated system. You still need to see change at pace sometimes. And we also, we put process in the way of things where sometimes we, um, we treat things that are at an early stage like they're at a late stage, mm-hmm. and we put in levels of governance that we don't need to for trying things. We need to find the balance between how can we experiment at pace, what is good enough sometimes versus what is good, what is a two-way door versus a one-way door decision, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. But it's really hard when you don't give people enough context to make the decisions. Right. Um, there's a, a metaphor I heard someone talking about how you run a company, and sometimes it's you. It's a, a street plan where you've got roundabouts, hmm. and sometimes it's where you have red lights. Hmm. And red lights means you have to stop and wait for a green light, even if no one's coming from any other direction. You have to stop and wait. So maybe that's like you have to wait for the governance meeting that might be next week to make a decision. And then you have to wait for the next governance meeting from another team to make another decision. And you know, so nothing ever gets shipped. Mm-hmm. It takes forever mm-hmm. to do anything. But that's also something that needs to be done in a highly regulated situation or a low context situation where people don't understand the consequences of their actions and not, they're not communicating well. Roundabouts is when you get to a certain decision point, you have to look both ways and you have to make the judgment call yourself. And maybe you communicate what you the decision you made, and someone will call you and say, hey there, wait a minute, before you get too far down the line. You're being empowered to make a decision and go for it if no one else is coming, if there's nothing else right. It's hard. It takes a lot of responsibility. It takes a lot of trust, and it takes a lot of context to make that work. Mm. But if you can build a roundabout-based cu- culture, then you're empowering people. Definition of leadership that I really like is the ability to delegate decision-making effectively. Mm -hmm. If you have created a culture where people at multiple levels are more often than not making the right decisions and that you don't need to be consulted as a stopper before they make these decisions, 
then you're building a pro a company that's able to be nimble, that's able to be agile, that's able to react and be more successful. I love it. It's also, by the way, a really good uh, acid test of, of your strategy and if you actually have one, because if if you have a strategy, but it still requires everybody, mm. everybody in the company to get into a room to make a decision, that's not a very useful or effective strategy. And it's not helping uh, better decisions happen faster, uh, especially as the company grows and we have to have more decentralized decision making. So I yes to everything you just said. And I love that metaphor of uh, traffic lights and roundabouts. <laughs> I, I, that's a great metaphor. Thank you. Thank you for that. I wish I knew who to give credit for for on that one. Randy, this has been so great. And I, I always, every time we're talking, I just want to keep talking. But, you know, at some point we have to sign off and you need to go eat dinner. So I just would, first of all, thank you for everything you're doing uh, as, a, as a community builder, as a, someone contributing to our field, uh, and just uh, always being a, a pay it forward kind of person. So first off, thanks for, for everything you're doing. And, and I guess just in closing out, uh, what would you like to leave listeners with? Well, first, I want to thank you because every conversation I have with you, I walk away having learned something. So this is right back at you. And uh, one of the best things I got out of uh, out of participating in uh, Marty and the, the Silicon Valley product groups coaching the coaches course was this amazing community of other coaches that I get to hang out with and, and learn from all the time. Yeah. In terms of what I want to leave people with, just remember, this is a really hard job. It's okay to question yourself and ask these questions. You don't always have to have the right answer straight away. You have to be able to work with other people to get to the right answer, though. Mm. And a lot of that is about conversations and relationships. Uh, competence is there. You, uh, you, know, you can't not show up. You can't not be able to deliver. But you have to be able to do it in a way that works with people. And that's, that's almost even harder. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. It's, it's conversations with people that ultimately deliver value. And that's the thing. Right on. Well, Randy, thanks again for being here and uh, keep doing what you're doing. We'll see you out there in 24. Fantastic. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, Leave them better than you found them. See you out there.